0: This morning, we talked about four truly impossible things found in the book of Jonah. One of which was most definitely not Jonah in the belly of the big fish for three days before he became, we'll just go with fish vomit. That happened, that was not impossible. We covered this at length. The four impossible things we did find and discuss in the book of Jonah, things which are typically kind of overlooked or at the very least overshadowed by the story of the big fish, were that it is impossible, number one, to run away from God, number two, it is impossible to change God's commandments, even when we don't want to obey them, number three it is impossible for God to change his character, and number four, it is impossible to please God without a godly love and concern for those lost in sin. Tonight is going to be the the second part, as it were, or the second sermon, very similar sermon in this little installation on Jonah. It's gonna serve as our sequel. We are going to take a look at seven astonishing things that we find in the book of Jonah, seven astonishing things that we find in the book of Jonah. Now, there will be some overlap, because some of those things that are impossible, or better yet, if we flip that around, are possible because of the impossibilities, (laughs) are also amazing. For example, this first one, the first astonishing really amazing thing that I would like to point out tonight, which gets overlooked. It's it's very close to this morning's first point, which was it's impossible to run away from God, And, and tonight's first point relevant to that is the amazing thing that a man who knew God and therefore had to have known that God was everywhere still tried to run from him. It's kind of an expansion of this morning's. The thing in this book that really reaches out and and, and grabs you when you stop and think about it, one of the things is Jonah knew God. He wasn't a pagan. He wasn't somebody who'd never heard of God. He wasn't somebody who hadn't experienced God's mercy. We know that from the prayer in chapter two where he thanks God for the deliverance that he got. This wasn't a man unfamiliar or unacquainted with who God was, he knew who God was. And it's amazing, therefore, that a man who knew God as he did, still thought he could run from him. Jonah knew that all creation was created by God. He knew that. And he knew that all creation remained under the watchful eye of God. Chapter 1 and verse 9. And so just follow along with me in in chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 10. It says... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God through the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. We covered those verses pretty, pretty in depth this morning so I'm not going into them again tonight. I want to move on from there. So the captain came to him and he said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. These were polytheists. These were people that believed that every nation had its own God and whatever God you had was fine and there were all different kinds of gods and ways and all of that and unfortunately, that idea has permeated modern day America, but we will move on. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, lots fell on Jonah. They said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And you can, as you read that, you can almost picture all these sailors just throwing questions at him. It wasn't like an orderly, my turn, can I get one in? It was just throwing these questions at him more than likely. So they said to them, look, look at his confession. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Really, Jonah? You fear him? He tells you to go somewhere, and you say, I'm going the other way really this would be this would be akin to confessing to somebody that you are a Christian after they come home and find out that you had broken into their house to steal their stuff that's pretty much what this comes down to and we kind of laugh at that and say really but that's what Jonah here's Jonah confessing to know God when he's running from obedience to God the irony The hypocrisy, if you will, it's amazing. Jonah in his pride or rebellion or or resistance to God, whatever you want to call it, had apparently convinced himself that he could somehow flee from God's presence, even even knowing God, he he said in Jonah four and verse two that he knew God, even knowing God, he had to have known that he couldn't And, and we touched briefly on this this morning, but I want to go a little further, Jonah, as an israelite who knew god lived about 200 years or so between 100 and 200 years as i alluded to this morning after david now he should have therefore known the writings of david if he had been a faithful israelite he should have known some of the psalms and we talked this morning about Psalm 39 and, and we read part of that. In verses one through 12, David confirms God's everywhere. If I go to heaven, hell furthest reaches the sea wherever God can't flee from God. But, but it's, it's not only that. You see, there are other writings in the Old Testament as well, for example, what King David's son, King Solomon also wrote. When he wrote in Proverbs 15 and verse three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah, years later, would go on to say in Jeremiah 23, 24, can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. In the New Testament, we have text that tells us that God sees everything, knows everything as well. Mentioned this morning, Hebrews 4 and verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of eyes of him to whom we have to give account now that's not just in a physical sense because you know what the verse just before that says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart as well not just what we physically do God knows not only our actions but he knows our intentions you can't you can't hide from God it is truly amazing truly amazing when one who would claim to know God, who would stand up before pagans and say, I I fear God, or I know God, could somehow convince himself that he could run from the presence of God. That he could hide himself or his sin, his own intentions from him who is everywhere and sees and knows everything, and it's just as amazing when that happens today. The second amazing Astounding, astonishing point I'd like to bring out from the book of Jonah. And one that, <laughs> one that is, is really, if I had to list of these seven, which is the most mind-boggling for me, which one is the most ugh, this would probably make the top two. Okay? The second amazing thing is that some of God's chosen people would rather die than to share God's love, compassion, forgiveness, and redemption with others. Some, number two, it's amazing to me, some of God's people would rather die than share God's love and compassion and redemption and forgiveness with others. We see this in verse 12, look look in verse 12 of chapter one. They had asked him, what are we gonna do about this? And and he says to them in chapter one and verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Throw me in and let me die. Now, think a minute, would it have not, if he was really considering at this point just truly repenting and, and going to share God's love and forgiveness, wouldn't it have been just as easy to have said, I will pray to my God, turn the ship around, he will save us, take me back to land and I will go do what God told me to do. Wouldn't that seem like a reasonable alternative rather than throw me into the sea and let me die? But what what's he say? Throw me in. The thought of going back apparently isn't in his mind at this point in time. To me it would be like, you know what God, I've messed up, to, to many of us, probably all of us, God, I've messed up and, and I'm, the, I'm the problem here and so let me, let me pray to God, take me back and I'll do what God told me to do not Jonah throw me overboard and we we see this idea that he would rather die than to share God's love and compassion repeatedly come out in the book of Jonah it's not just this once look in chapter 4 look at verse 3 and 4 He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? See, Jonah was angry, why? Because the people had responded positively to God's love and compassion. He couldn't live with that. He says again down here in chapter four and verse eight, same thing, or or it says approximately same thing. It happened, the sun arose, that God prepared a vehement east wind, the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wished death for himself. It's better for me to die than to live. It seems like at every corner, that that he's just he's struggling so much with God's love and forgiveness for the people of Nineveh that he's always saying you know do away with me and have it over with the third amazing astonishing thing from the book of Jonah is that these heathen pagan sailors had more compassion for another human being than did the servant of the living God. Isn't that amazing? These pagan sailors had more compassion for another human being than did the servant of the living God. Notice in chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, the sailors were heathen, while Jonah, verse 9, was a Hebrew. And if we look in verses 11 through 13, especially the beginning of verse 13, it says the men rowed hard to return to land after Jonah had said to throw him overboard. These pagan sailors were willing to work harder. They were willing to row and, and pull in this, this life and death situation. They were trying to, to save him. They were willing to work harder to save him who had caused so much harm. One man who brought this storm on him, they were willing to work harder to save him than he was to save 120,000 people in Nineveh. And he was supposed to be the servant of the loving God. And yes, I said loving on purpose. When people who do not know our God extend more compassion and work harder to ease the pain of others then we as servants of the living God, something just don't seem right. There's a problem. Even those people, there, there are people today who are playing hide and seek with God. There are people today who think they can run from God. There are people today because of their own self-imposed sin that are, that are running from God. But even for those running from God, we as God's children need to make sure we have at least as much compassion as those who do not know our God. Jonah did not. As I alluded to again this morning we can preach the truth we can point out biblical error we can pride ourselves on both of those things but if we have not love it profits us nothing nothing we're no different than Jonah 1 Corinthians 13 Matthew 5 Revelation 2 the fourth amazing astounding astonishing point I'd like for us to notice from the book of Jonah is that people as wicked as the Ninevites would so completely turn to God. People as wicked as the Ninevites would so completely turn to God at the preaching of Jonah. Brother David Roper in his Truth For Today commentary said this, he said later in the seventh century BC, the prophet Nahum described Nineveh's sins as plotting evil against God, cruelty and warfare, prostitution, in sorcery Nahum chapter 1 verse 11 chapter 2 12 and 13 chapter 3 1 4 and 19 A while after this after they've repented at the preaching of Jonah they have gotten back into their sins and these are the type of sins that they had been engaged in and it is amazing that people that were engaged in those types of sins would so completely turn at the preaching of jonah that is amazing brother roper also went on to point out that the hebrew word for wickedness which god used to describe the ninevites in jonah one two where in jonah one two it says arise go to nineveh that great city cry out against it for their wickedness that word right there in the hebrew is the same word that god used to describe the wickedness of the world just before he destroyed it with a flood in Genesis six and verse five, the story of Noah. But as we talk about this amazing thing that people as wicked as the Ninevites would repent, I wanna look at the text here and read what God said about that very thing. Turn to me to Jonah three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. We talked about that this morning. So Jonah rose. And i got to say, if I'm laying there on the beach and I've just been spit out of this big fish after three days, God can tell me to go anywhere, and I'm going. Just, just saying, okay? So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, watch this, was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Little bit of... Note here, just in case you're talking to somebody and they say, well, ar- archaeologists have up-earthed this and it wasn't that big. The main city itself wasn't all that, but what they believe is a lot of little cities around there were included in that. Like you say, New York City, what are you talking about? We're talking about Queens, you're talking about White Plains, you're talking about the Bronx, you talking about all these little uh, places. Maybe if you're talking to Tulsa, you take in Jenks and you take in... Um, places like that around Tulsa. So when we talk about Nineveh, that great city, the city proper wasn't that big, but when you put all of the little outlying, all that area together, yes. So anyway, we continue. Three day journey in extent. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. He cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, there's probably a lot of what he said that's not recorded, that's one sentence. So the people of Nineveh believed God I mean, it changed just like that. The people of Nineveh proclaimed, I'm sorry, believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, this is the king, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Do you know what that's the equivalent of? That's the equivalent of, of a member of the Lord's church going in, well not even that, I'm thinking just this with the king, going into whoever's in office, whatever year, doesn't matter, pick your year, the president, and telling him the gospel, and the president losing the tie and the suit coat and putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting. That's the equivalent. Jonah did an amazing thing here, okay, an incredible thing. And as, as we read on, it says he went further than that and he caused it to be proclaimed. This is like going before Congress and saying, hey, we've all got to get on board with this or, or you know, they are, and, and all of them, both sides of the aisle did. And there's this big proclamation, he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, i.e. Congress, if you will, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish? When you put it in terms of our nation today, wouldn't that be an incredible thing? For every member of Congress to get on board with this—I mean, doesn't matter who they are, where they are. all of them to get on board, and this proclamation to be passed that we're not going to eat or drink in the whole United States. We're going to all bow down and pray to God. And if people would do it, you've got to admit, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's what happened. 120,000 people. King, noble, th- this is it. You say, wait to get that figure, 120,000 people. I get it from chapter 4 and verse 11. That's what's going on here and they repent, this is amazing, and, and God saw their works, verse 10, they turned away from their evil way and God relented from the disaster he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. These people were sinful people. Again, as we read Nahum's account, we know what they were involved with. They denied God, they were, they were a people steeped in sin. And so what is my point? Brethren, sometimes we're kind of tempted to maybe only reach out to those people in our social circle, maybe only reach out to those good and reputable people in town, to only reach out to those those people who, who are already good people, who are upstanding citizens, but you know what? Jesus had more friends amongst the sinners and the tax collectors than he did the scribes and Pharisees, did he not? Jesus was accused of of eating with sinners. Jesus had more friends amongst the sinners and tax gatherers than the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter nine, verses 10 through 13. We need to be looking for people to talk to about Jesus, not just because we think, hey, that person might respond. Hey, that person might respond. There was no reason to believe the Ninevites were going to respond positively. No earthly reason. These were evil, wicked people. But you know what? Hear me loud and clear. We need more faith in the power of the gospel to change people and less negativity regarding people's willingness to change when they hear the gospel. We need more faith in the gospel to change people's lives and less negativity. Well we've tried that now, well that person they'd never come Well, I'm not even talk to them because that ain't even possible. These were impossible people and their repentance is amazing. Said a minute ago, we need more faith in the gospel's power to change people and less negativity. People's willingness to change. Remember, let me, let me just give you a couple of New Testament accounts to recall to mind real quick. Talk about the gospel appealing to people that are really, really, really deeply entrenched in sin. As opposed to the good people. Now, there's good people like Cornelius, you know. But what about the, what about the Samaritan woman in John 4? He said, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with now ain't your husband. This woman had such a reputation, it appears as though that she wouldn't even come out in the cool of the morning with the other ladies of her little village in order to get water, but she came in the noonday heat. And Jesus talked to her and when the disciples came back, they were amazed, talking to this woman, this this Samaritan woman, I mean, she's not somebody they would have even paid any attention to. If they'd walked up to her, there would have been probably no interaction at all. Jew, Samaritan, woman, male, female, the whole nine yards. What'd that woman go on to do? She went back and she led her whole village to come listen to Jesus, didn't she? This one person that that maybe nobody thought was worth that much. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, we have Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And we have some of the other Pharisees there and kind of the upstanding crowd. And this this woman comes in and she breaks this this vial of perfume and she anoints Jesus. And Simon says, well, if if he were a prophet, he'd he'd know. He kind of says to himself, you know, well, if he was a prophet, he'd he'd know what kind of woman this is. And and Jesus said, Simon, let me tell you something. Let me ask you something tells him this story and he gets to the end he says Simon who do you think who do you think would love him more and Simon said I suppose the one who is forgiven more remember what Jesus told that woman told her to go on her way her faith had saved her she wasn't somebody that the rest of the crowds would have looked at and said hey any more than the Ninevites were and we see this time and time and time and time and time again in scriptures you remember first Timothy 1 12 through 16 Paul writing to Timothy what does he say he said I was the worst of sinners and yet and yet the fifth amazing astounding discovery at least to me that we find in the book of Jonah (laughs) is that a preacher or proclaimer of God's Word that was so incredibly, unbelievably successful could at the same time be so disappointed with the outcome of his efforts. (laughs) Look at at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, right after they've all repented, the whole town, and the proclamation's been made, and the king and his nobles have turned, and the people, and and all of this. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceed. See, I don't get that. I, I don't get that. You've turned the whole nation, Jonah. They've all turned to God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Not only was he upset, he was angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, our Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, so, because I know you're gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, Lord, take my life. You know what we ought to remember Jonah for instead of being you know, the great fish guy, okay? Might I suggest when people start talking about Jonah and the great fish and the great fish guy and all that, you know what Jonah needs to be remembered for, more so than that? As probably in terms of straight up numbers in a short amount of time, the greatest evangelist in the Bible. Or at least in the Old Testament. I want you to think about this. We look at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached the first gospel sermon, 3,000 souls were saved. We know the story well, right? 3,000. We say, wow, if we could get, wouldn't it be great if we had three people per service converted to Christ? Wouldn't that be awesome? Three per service. Would that be pretty cool? Nine a week. Right? That'd be good, right? Peter had 3,000 on one day. huh?" you know Jonah had 40 times that amount of people respond it says all of them responded positively 120,000 Don't do the math 3,000 times 40 that's 120,000 probably in terms of sheer numbers brought to God in a short amount of time Jonah was probably the single most successful evangelist in the entire history of the human race and he's mad <laughs> how do you do that he's upset he's angry because God is so loving. You know why? Because Jonah's heart wasn't in it. It's really that simple. Jonah's heart wasn't into saving these people. And brethren, I gotta, I gotta come right out and, and just bring this out, because I can't just walk by it and leave it laying there. I think sometimes this is the problem when we have to drive people to evangelize if the heart's not in it then they're not going to be that happy necessarily with the results when you have to drag somebody kicking and screaming to go talk to people about Jesus and the heart's really not into saving souls then then there's probably going to be some some of these types of emotions somewhere brethren we shouldn't have to drag people to evangelize we need to give our, let's see where the elders are seated here. Okay. We need to give our elders problems. Now, before you hear me out, hear me out. The way we need to give our elders problems is that we need to be talking to so many people about Jesus that they have to tell us, will you slow down? We don't have room to put all these people. Wouldn't that be a great problem to have elders? Wouldn't that be a great problem to have? Got to stand up front and make an announcement and say, hey, 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 you guys talking to Jesus great, but we got no place to put them. I said, John, 120,000 people? Wow. And he's mad. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's amazing. You see, If our heart is truly in it, we shouldn't be able to be shut up or shut down or stop from talking to others about what the Lord has done for us, Acts chapters 4, 5, and 6. That leads me into our sixth astonishing point that I want to mention from the book of Jonah. 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 And that is that a man who knows God can have his priorities so messed up. At the root of Jonah's problem was a lack of appreciation and understanding for the love of God. If only, and I've said this before here, if only we could just, if God could somehow take us to the very brink of hell itself and and allow us to to look in and, and see what eternity is going to be like in that place, I think that we would have a whole new appreciation for Jesus, what he's done for us, for the souls around us jonah seemed to have this lack of appreciation and understanding of the always available love of the lord and if we could just see people like jesus does matthew 9 35 and 6 not sure we could be stopped from telling people about him but but too often today instead of like in the first century where the disciples turn the world upside down with their preaching, sometimes it's not the world we turn upside down. Sometimes with us, it's our priorities, like Jonah's priorities, that we stand on their head and turn upside down. Because everything else in the world is more important than telling somebody about Jesus. Jonah, Jonah was ready to let 120,000 people, perish Jonah was willing to let 120,000 precious souls perish forever that was fine with him that would be great but don't you mess with his personal comfort because that really get him upset you know that's exactly what happened that that's who Jonah was 120,000 Lord I didn't want to come here in the first place Let them go, let them perish. I don't care, I'd prefer it that way. Oh, but don't mess with my personal comfort. Now you're gonna upset me. See, that's kind of what happened here. When you mess with somebody's personal comfort, look out, chapter four, verses four through 11. Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. See, Jonah here, it implies, is still waiting to see what God's going to do. Maybe God will still cause them to perish, maybe he won't, but, but Jonah's still kind of, well, I wonder what he's going to do. And the Lord God prepared a plant, made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery, so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Oh, he's so grateful for this plant because it makes him comfortable. It delivers him from his misery. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose, God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head. He wasn't uncomfortable anymore. So that he grew faint and he wished death for himself He said, it's better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Jonah was fickle. Would you you agree that Jonah was a little bit fickle? (laughs) God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it's right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left and much livestock? It really irked Jonah when his personal comfort was at stake that next day. That got him. But people perishing in those numbers were no big deal. Brethren, the church of our Lord is not primarily about personal comfort in this life. We've got to get that. The church isn't about being comfortable. Matter of fact, if you're really, really comfortable, then probably there's a problem. Because that's not what the church is about. Yes, to comfort us in our problems, yes, don't get me wrong, but, but if every challenge that you hear from the Word of God, whether it be in Bible class, whether it be in, in a sermon, if, if you're being challenged the way you ought to be challenged, you're not always gonna be comfortable with what's said. That's just the way it is. We're here to learn to live better and differently. Is that right? We're here to learn to live for God instead of ourselves, and sometimes that means a, a little challenge. You know that passage that we often use in Second Timothy, have you noticed? Now that's not about comfort? Second Timothy three, if you would please. Very familiar text, we use it a lot, but, but I want you to notice a few terms. Speaking of personal comfort, Second Timothy three, 16 through chapter four in verse two. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work where's the comfort there now there is comfort there is comfort in God's instruction when we obey it yes there is there is comfort in the one doctrine yes but but notice it's it's not specifically about comfort primarily and believe me reproof and correction are not always comfortable are they we don't like to be corrected we don't like to be reproved and if we move on, it says, I charge you, therefore, chapter four and verse one, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Notice the three terms, convince, rebuke, and exhort or encourage. Now, the word exhort, sometimes translated encourage, that's about comforting and encouraging, yes. But, but convincing and rebuking ain't always comfortable. Jonah more and more concerned with his personal comfort than with losing 120,000 people. That reading, that last reading in the book of Jonah in chapter four naturally flows into our seventh and final amazing and astounding element this evening, which we see present in the book of Jonah. I I could spend days on this one. Matter of fact, that's what our worship services are all about, I I don't have the words I don't have the adjectives I don't have the superlatives to really adequately describe this 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 item that and I'll get there in a minute but but this item is so much discussed, and so far beyond our frail minds to even begin to understand or comprehend that it's easy to overlook or take for granted this side of heaven but once we go through the judgment When we go through the judgment day, when it's all over and Hades delivers up the dead that is in them and we all come before God, Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15, and we stand before God for judgment, when that day comes, when the secrets of men's hearts are revealed, and we see those people who are not his, those people that are not washed in the blood, those people who don't belong to the family of God, and we see, what happens to them? We see what they are subjected to because of their sin not being able to enter heaven. When that day comes, we will not be able to adequately thank or praise God enough for this one final element that I'm about to mention that forms the nucleus of the whole book of Jonah, runs through the entire book of Jonah from beginning to end. And that element, that just that amazing, incredible mind-boggling, beyond our comprehension element is simply this, and you're gonna say, really? Yeah, really. The incredible love of the Lord God Almighty. The incredible, merciful, compassionate love of our God. God is the creator of the universe. God can say and do anything he wants anytime he wants to do it. Matter of fact, he can't do it anytime he wants to because he operates above time. <laughs> so I'm not sure how to put that, but anyway, God is almighty and, and he can do whatever whenever however and, and he keeps his word. But but one of the the greatest thing here the amazing astonishing uh, mind-blowing thing here is God's great love and his patience for all mankind no matter how evil no matter how awful no matter how sinful no matter how much we might try to run away from him God's love throughout this book is incredible it is seen in his love for the Ninevites, these people that were into all those sins I mentioned earlier from the book of Nahum. And, and what God was willing to do to make sure they got the message, God could have just written them off, but he didn't. And, and when Jonah said, I don't want to go, I'm going to Tarshish, God could have said, well, if he'd been any other God, he could have said, well, you know what? They're an evil people anyway, but that's not who God is. We, we can't change God's character. The love of God is seen in his love for the Ninevites and what he was willing to do to make sure they got the message. And and from the beginning of his interaction with Jonah, right through the end of the book, God's great love, that amazing, astonishing, just unbelievable love is there. Listen, in chapter 4, look at his patience, like, like with a little child that doesn't understand. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't have to do this with Jonah but it's simply because of who he really is as God that he does, he he, he reasons with his creation, he he reasons with a mere mortal man who's angry and displeased, because he knows God's love is this incredible thing that he just can't, he doesn't wanna share with others. And and he knows that, and, and, and God, instead of saying, okay, that's it, boom, you're done. What does God do? In his great love, God says, do you really think you need to be angry? He's reasoning with him like you would a child. Do you really think you ought to be angry, Jonah? Jonah, let me give you an illustration, explain to you what I've done. It wasn't enough that he sent a great fish to bail him out. It wasn't enough that he loved him enough not to just let him drown in the sea. Now he's talking to him and explaining step by step. And the plant grows up. And he said, he said after the plant died, he said, Jonah, you had pity on the plant, verse 10, chapter 4, for which you've not labored, et cetera, et cetera. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? He's willing to teach slowly like you would a, a, a two-year-old. What an incredible God, what incredible love. He doesn't have to do that, but yet he has to do that because that's who he is. There's some amazing stuff in the book of Jonah. Amazing stuff. The fish don't even compare with some of this stuff, I can tell you. Now, while God's great love is everlasting, that is not to say that his great patience won't one day run out. It did with the Ninevites. 150 or so years later, God destroyed the city because they went back to their wickedness. God's love is unconditional. He loves everybody, but his patience eventually runs out. Nineveh was later destroyed, 150 to 200 years later when they turn back to their sins as Nahum describes, and that same thing can happen with Christians who become Christians and then turn back to the world as we discussed this morning from 2 Peter 2 verses 20-22. through In a negative sense, in a negative sense, one of the saddest most amazing, most astonishing things that could possibly happen right here in this building tonight would be for one who would claim to know and fear God, to stay determined, to run away from their God-given responsibility to share the love and compassion of Jesus with those they know are lost in sin. For one, it would be amazing knowing God's great love for somebody to say, I'm just not gonna do it. I don't wanna share Jesus. There's a difference between I don't want to and I'm not sure how and I'm not strong enough. Another one of the saddest, most astonishing, amazing things that could happen here tonight would be one to whom the Lord in his great love and patience has given one more day. He's given you today to obey the gospel. You know what you need to do. You know how much God loves you. You know how much God wants you. You know what you've got to do. You know you need to repent and be baptized. And in a negative sense, one of the most amazing things would be to run from that love tonight and once again not come forward and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Even the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. They came to God. And as Jesus said, there's one greater here than Jonah, and he's calling you tonight to obey the gospel. But on a positive note, the absolute greatest, most astonishing thing that could happen here tonight would be for one of you, or a dozen of you, but I don't think there's that many here, for one of you who knows what you need to do, you know this love of God, you've believed the gospel, it would be the most amazing and wonderful and awesome thing could happen for you to come forward tonight and put on Christ in baptism. To have a new family member in the body of Christ tonight if you would repent and obey the gospel and be baptized at the preaching of Jesus who is much greater than Jonah or if you need the prayers of the church to be stronger when it comes to your call to share Jesus with others if you have any of those needs tonight please come right now let us baptize you pray for you whatever needs to be done to help you as we stand and sing